You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production. The first thing you notice is the quiet. Standing in a dusty field of parched grass, the hot sun on your shoulders, there's a stillness in the air and all around you, as if the sunlight is pressing down on the rocks and the trees and the half-buried foundations of long-forgotten homes. You're just 30 minutes away from the town of Princeton, British Columbia, from its coffee shops and restaurants, and from the busy highway, but it feels like hours, days, years away, like you've stepped into a pocket of time where things move more slowly. It's not completely silent. You can hear the ever-present rush of the creek hidden at the bottom of a tree-covered slope to your left. You might hear a few birds singing, or maybe the easy wind in the trees, but nothing else. No cars, no voices, no barking dogs or droning televisions through open windows. Just the sound of the land. A weathered stone marker lies ahead, half-hidden in the tall grass. You leave your car and walk up the gravel path, and you're struck by the loudness of your footsteps and the feeling that you're somehow intruding in this place, though it's long been abandoned. The plaque's inscription informs you that you are standing on the site of Granite Creek, once considered the third largest settlement in British Columbia. You nudge your rusty scrap of metal with your boot and survey the horizon. You see the slumped remains of a log cabin and the scraps of a road that cuts diagonally across the field, leading up a steep incline and around a bend to an old cemetery. You scratch your head. It's hard to believe this tiny parcel of land was once home to thousands of people. Then your eyes adjust to a slower way of moving. You start to notice the little things. The stray planks of bleached wood. The scattered heaps of twisted metal. The sunken depressions where buildings used to be. Then you see the trenches and piles of earth alongside those depressions the solemn rows of broken bottle shards glinting in the sun, and countless indentations and potholes dotting the ground. And you realize that these are the scars from a century of searching, from countless hunters picking through the ruins, digging in the earth, and even torching abandoned buildings in the hopes of finding precious metals, forgotten relics, and a legendary and elusive ghost town treasure. You're listening to Fireside Canada, my podcast about Canadian legends, lies, and lore. I'm David Williams. Tonight, we're talking treasures. Some already found, one still waiting to be discovered. All are the stuff of legend, and all come from just one of British Columbia's long-forgotten ghost towns. To learn these legends and hear their history is to take a step back in time, when word of discovered gold would draw thousands to the wilderness and, for a few short years in the late 1800s, give rise to the bustling town of Granite Creek. Along the way, you'll hear a number of legends about lucky finds, feats of strength, and buried treasure. This is the legend of the lost cache of Granite Creek. Part 1. Found by Chance The area known as the Similkameen Country 
has always been home to one treasure or another. Carved in the shadows of the Cascade Mountains, roughly 400 kilometers east of Vancouver, BC, the ancient valley was first the source of a rare red ochre, a beautiful vermilion clay that was prized by the region's First Nations as a pigment for pictographs and for decorating tools and clothing. Later, employees of the Hudson's Bay Company would stock the valley in search of prized furs. Then, heavy veins of valuable copper ore were discovered just south of the bluffs, along with a small amount of gold. Twenty-five years after that, a fortune in gold would be discovered in the streams to the north, followed by rich deposits of high-quality coal that would power the province's steamships, trains, and hearths. Today, the valley's excellent alluvial soil, sun-soaked benches, and windy landscape has made it the organic and fruit stand capital of Canada, and a burgeoning region for award-winning wine. You can still find plenty of gold in the valley, but it now comes in the form of a glass of Chardonnay. But in the summer of 1885, a hard-up Kentucky cowboy named Johnny Chance knew none of that. Charged with driving a herd of horses through the valley, the only prize he was chasing was either a good meal or a stray horse, depending on the legend. You see, the stories go that Johnny Chance was too lazy to work, so his trail partners did one of two things. Either they made him the camp cook, gave him a gun and told him to hunt grouse, or jerked him to his feet and sent him after a horse that had strayed from the herd. Either way, Chance hadn't gone far when he decided he was done with work. It was too hot, and he was too tired to spend all day searching for some dumb animal. Maybe if he sat down and didn't move, the animal would come to him. So he went to the edge of a fast-flowing creek and sat down. He took off his hat, dipped his feet in the cool, clear water, and fell asleep. Hours later, Johnny woke refreshed, but nowhere closer to his goal. But that didn't matter. The sun had shifted, and in the afternoon light, he could see pieces of gold glittering like sparks at his feet. He scooped up one, then another, then another, until his buckskin poke was full of gold. He then returned to camp, without his grouse or his lost horse, but with something that would change the landscape and people's fortunes forever. The Granite Creek Gold Rush was on. Now let's stop for a moment and really appreciate the fact that it was only by a stroke of incredible luck that a man named Chance discovered, by chance, a fortune in coarse gold. That fact is not lost on some storytellers who provide, along with this brief tale, a short and dubious lesson on cultural linguistics as well. They claim that the phrase, found by chance, as in something discovered accidentally, was coined that day, inspired by the man and his serendipitous discovery. That is almost certainly incorrect, but the basic story of Chance's lucky find is generally accepted as fact. Some historians believe that other groups actually discovered the gold slightly before that fateful day, but Johnny Chance has long been recognized as the founder of Granite Creek because he was the first person to officially stake a claim, a claim that, in just one day, yielded over $800 in gold, roughly equivalent to $22,000 today. In the coming months, hundreds of people from all walks of life flooded the valley, mostly from the Caribou, Cassiar, California, and Australia. 
Some of the earliest arrivals recalled a landscape completely covered in campfires and tents, and creek banks teeming with hundreds of men working tirelessly through the day and night. The entire creek, once clean and clear, was churned to foam and mud by the constant work of water wheels. By the following year, the Victoria colonists reported that a 10-acre patch of land at the mouth of Granite Creek was bursting with nine general stores, 14 hotels and restaurants, two jewelers, three bakers, three barbers, three blacksmiths, two stables, a shoemaker, butcher, chemist, attorney, and doctor. Eight pack trains routinely made their way along the dusty road, bringing in fresh supplies for their eager consumers. And perhaps no supply was in greater demand than alcohol, sold to the thirsty miners at 22 different saloons. Now, it's important to know that Granite Creek wasn't like those old west towns you've seen in movies, or even like Barkerville, BC's much-loved preserved historic town from the Caribou Gold Rush. This wasn't so much a boom town as it was the gaudiest and biggest mining camp in the province, in the words of politician and historian Bill Barley. Places like Barkerville and Sandon had board and batten structures, boardwalks, churches, and schools. But granite was a jumble of rough log shacks reinforced with moss and mud. Church services were held wherever a preacher could find the space. The earliest sermons were held in the open air upon the dirt floor of a cabin still under construction. After the ceremony, a hat was passed around to collect gold dust for the good reverend. The camp hotels, with grand names like the Cosmopolitan, the Dry Art Hotel, and the Caribou House, were little more than saloons with an extra half-story up top. For $8 a week, you were welcome to find a spot somewhere in the open space known as the Ram Pasture, and shake down your blanket each night. The granite goldfield was considered poor man's dickings, meaning it contained substantial and shallow deposits of coarse gold that were easily mined. This attracted a huge number of inexperienced and desperate people hoping to get a piece of the action. Most would eventually return to their jobs with the railroad or to their farms, while some would end up destitute on the street, begging for work at the larger claims and sifting through the trash. Yet despite its humble appearance, image still mattered. P. L. Trout's Prospector's Manual, published in 1886, advised its readers to buy a horse in the last town on the trail and ride it into camp, if for nothing more than looks. This would be looked upon as a patent of nobility, the author tells us, quote, a kind of certificate that you at some time had been somebody. It becomes an almost actual necessity for you to have one, end quote. The author admits that once you arrive, you'll likely need to abandon your horse to the wilderness, but assures you that you can simply buy another. Look after your dignity, he urges. In this way, you can travel comfortably, and when you get to Granite Creek, you can go into town with enough dignity to make the impression that you are not a beat or a tramp, but most likely a man of means, end quote. As with every gold rush before it, a sort of desperate optimism combined with legends of lucky strikes kept spirits high. One story tells how a man from London spent his very last dollar to stake a claim at Granite. He borrowed a rocker box and, within one day, found over $400 in gold. By the time he left the creek, he had $11,000 in his pocket. Part 2. A Shooting Now, 
It's impossible to talk about places like Granite Creek without touching on the mythos of the Wild West, with all of its gunslingers, tin-star sheriffs, outlaws, and saloons. It's generally understood that Canada's early West wasn't nearly as wild as our neighbors to the south, due to a variety of reasons, not the least of which was a significantly lower population, early unceded ownership by the Hudson's Bay Company, and later, rigid British rule. That being said, there were occasional exceptions, especially in the gold rush towns and mining camps that seemed to spring from the ground nearly overnight. One harrowing story of wild horseback riding and deadly gunplay took place in the early days of Granite Creek. It was late August or early September of 1885, just a few months after Johnny Chance had scooped up his newfound fortune from the river. Hearing news of the sensational discovery, Alec, Walton, and Jim knew they had to act fast. Loading their pack horses with goods to sell, they made their way to Granite Creek, now teeming with several hundred miners who were eager to get in on the action. Making their way through the massive tents of countless campfires that littered the ground, they were fortunate enough to find some empty space along the bustling main street. By mid-morning, Alex was set up and already serving a line of customers, thirsty miners who had watched with eager anticipation as he erected his bar, unloaded countless bottles of liquor, and proudly placed a wide-faced clock on the shelf at the back of his makeshift saloon. Walton and Jim pitched their tent next door, and did what they could to entice Alec's patrons, sober or otherwise, to purchase their goods along with Alec's whiskey. They had barely just arrived, and business was booming. And surely the three men counted themselves lucky to be here, now, so early in what was looking to be a promising and lucrative venture. That positive outlook would change in just a few short hours. Around noon, as most of the miners were cooking their lunch and hanging pots over their fires, a sound rose over the countless conversations, crackling logs, and the rushing of the river nearby. It was the sound of shooting and shouting, and horses and men running wild. A gang of cowboys, from Montana mostly, thundered up the road, yelling at anyone nearby, warning in between pistol shots that they were bad men. They shot holes through a number of the miners' pots, then in gruff voices, challenged every miner with an earshot to step up and fight. Finding no answer, they rode through the tents and up to Alex's bar, where they ordered the nervous bartender to set out a line of drinks. One of the cowboys, still mounted on his horse, took aim at Alex's clock and put a bullet right through the center of its face. Alec did what he was told, and for the next hour or so, an uneasy peace fell upon the camp, with the cowboys drinking their fill, then riding through town singing their war song, as they called it, then returning to the bar for even more. As Walton recalled decades later, no money was in sight, no money was asked for. As bottle after bottle was drained, Alec cautiously made his way to his neighbor's tent and asked Walton and Jim to watch his bar. He wanted to stake a claim up Creek, and now seemed as good a time as any. Perhaps against their better judgment, Walton and Jim agreed, taking their place behind the bar and pouring out the last of the liquor. Soon, every single bottle was dry, and amidst the drunken grumblings of the cowboys, Walton desperately sifted through the pack bags, hoping that there was something left to serve to his ornery patrons. He found one last bottle of claret, a pale red wine which the cowboys quickly emptied. 
Then, with the camp's liquor and nerves thoroughly exhausted, the gang surprised everyone by paying for every single drink they consumed, and then paid ten cents each on top of that just for a smell of the empty bottles. Like a mountain storm, the cowboys left as quickly as they arrived. They stumbled out of the tent, mounted their horses, and did one last victory lap through the camp, once again shooting and shouting as the miners took cover. On their way out of town, as Walton and Jim stood near the bar's entrance, one of the last cowboys in the group, a man named Shorty, aimed his pistol at Jim and fired. Later, Shorty would swear that he was just having some fun with Jim, that he was aiming to shoot the hat off his head. But he aimed too low. Walton recalled hearing the crack of gunfire, looking to his side, and seeing a spray of blood spurt from Jim's forehead before he crumpled to the ground. The camp broke. The miners had tolerated the unruliness and aggression up to this point. These were things you would expect in an ungoverned and unauthorized mining camp on unceded land. But now blood had been spilled, and the shooter would have to answer for his crime. Several miners formed a vigilance committee and rode after the gang. Walton stole a gun from a nearby tent, and Shorty the cowboy became a hunted man. He rode across the creek and down the flat, then across the Tulamine River, firing at Walton, who was in hot pursuit. The cowboys, riding as fast as they could to escape the angry miners, crossed the Tulamine a bit further upriver. They heard Shorty's gunfire, saw Walton pursuing their friend, and they too opened fire. Thinking fast, Walton took cover behind a huge pine and crouched low as he could hear the bullets hit the tree and whiz past him. The posse chased the cowboys all the way to the U.S. border, where they escaped into Washington State. All but one. Shorty was caught just before he reached the border and was brought back to Granite Creek. Shockingly, he survived the anger of hundreds of miners and was sent to Yale to stand trial. He was sentenced to just one year in prison, a slap on the wrist due to two contributing factors. One, the judge believed his claim that the shooting was accidental. And two, the victim had miraculously survived. Somehow, Jim Newland managed to walk away after being shot in the face. The bullet had severed his left optic nerve, costing him his vision in that eye, and leaving him with a gruesome scar. After the trial, Walton placed his friend on a saddle horse and led it all the way to the Nicola Valley, then put his friend on a stagecoach and said his goodbyes. Jim went back to his farm, and Walton returned to Granite Creek, where he would live for the rest of his life. Part 3. A Colorful Town Like any town of the Old West, Granite Creek had its share of characters. There was Johnny Chance, of course, the lazy cowhand who fell asleep alone on a creek bank and woke up with Lady Luck by his side. Another prospector, a man named Andy Gordon, was said to be the strongest man in the valley. Legend says he once carried a 400-pound stove on his back all the way from Hope to Granite Creek, a distance of some 150 kilometers, or 93 miles. When he arrived, the owner of the stove, the proprietor of one of the many saloons, was so excited to receive it, he offered a free drink to all of his patrons. But hauling an iron stove through the wilderness can work up quite a thirst, so Andy took it upon himself to promptly remove every single person from the premises, lock the doors, and enjoy every last drop for himself. 
Colorful names were common in the camp, like Bell G. Powells, Colonel Bob Stevenson, and Lucky Todd. Poker George Rohde was not so lucky. He lost a hand and foot to frostbite in the winter of 1886 and died of gangrene a few days later. There was an old Chinese prospector who everyone called Not Enough, because each day, when others asked him how much gold he pulled from the creek, he would answer plainly, Not Enough. Another prospector, Captain Sherborne, drew over $400 a day from a claim right near town, only to lose most of it playing poker each night. He was known as quite the character, not because of his gambling, but rather because he never wore a Stetson hat, an unforgivable fashion faux pas for the time and place. Wild Goose Bill Jenkins was said to be something of a bully, and carried a revolver with four notches on its ivory handle. There was much speculation as to what those notches represented. There was also Judge Tom Murphy, a well-read sailor and miner originally from Pictou, Nova Scotia, who lived a full life as a trader in the South China Sea, then as a miner in Australia, New Zealand, and California, a newspaper editor and deputy sheriff in Nevada, and a licensing commissioner, prospector, and justice of the peace here in B.C., and I'd be remiss if I didn't mention the well-known and well-liked Chinese prospector who dealt with racist claim jumpers by changing his name to Frenchie. Because, quote, nobody ever jumped a Frenchman's claim. End quote. Finally, there was an older miner who became an infamous figure in Granite Creek lore. His story would become one of BC's most famous ghost town legends. Part 4 the Swede. His name was Johansson. No one knew his first name, so everyone just called him The Swede. He had come to Granite Creek a few years after gold was found, when the town was more civilized. He didn't have to fight the crowds for a place to pitch his tent, or worry about frostbitten hands and feet like poor Poker George. No one knew too much about him, he wasn't in town long enough to get to know, but he had a friendly disposition that was common amongst the older prospectors. A genuine, whole-souled nature and a significant amount of grit was necessary to live that long amongst the drifters and the cowboys, the ex-cons and hardened men who streamed into the boom towns and backwaters, looking for any opportunity, legal or otherwise, to find their fortune. Long before most miners would reach the Swede's age, around 70 years by most accounts, they would either burn out, move on, or wind up in an early grave. It also takes a special sort of person to spend your life on the road and in the hills, moving from one claim to another and living off whatever color you find in your pan. The Swede was one of the very few with the right composition. Every morning his fellow miners would see him out working the creek, and every evening they'd watch him carry his finds back to his cabin. Some didn't even need to look up to know that the Swede was passing by. In the early days, you could hear him coming down the trail, hear, above the steady rush of the creek, the clanging of his tools, and a signature rattling sound coming from an old tin that dangled from his pack. It wasn't Johansson's gold they were hearing. That would have been tucked away somewhere more secure. Instead, inside the old baking powder tin was a different kind of metal that the Swede and every other prospector at Granite Creek routinely found in their pans. No one knew what it was, and no one really cared. 
The early prospectors called it white iron, a fitting name for a mineral considered by many to be completely worthless and something of a nuisance. Others, especially the Chinese miners, called it white gold because it was hard, silver white, and lustrous, and it weighed just a little bit more than gold. It was often the first thing to settle in their sluice boxes, taking up valuable space, slowing their progress, and making it next to impossible to separate from the gold. Now, most miners would pluck out the flakes, pickers, and occasional nuggets, and simply toss them back in the water, annoyed that this white iron was making their job more difficult. But not Johansson. He was fascinated with the stuff, and even though no one in camp was buying it, he'd collect every piece he found and put it in that tin. A lot of the miners were amused by the Swede's curious hobby and decided to help him out, tossing in their own white iron as they passed. Soon, the Swede's tin was overflowing, so he dumped it all into an old water bucket and kept right on collecting. By the time he left town, some say for the Kootenays in pursuit of better prospects, that bucket was heavy with the stuff. Now, a bucket of trash is too much for the trail, where space is at a premium and every ounce matters. But he'd been collecting this white gold for years, and he wasn't prepared to just throw it all away. So, late one night, when all the cabins were dark, the Swede grabbed his bucket and shovel and went for a stroll. The air was cool, but touched with the softness of early spring, and as he walked, he could smell the grass and trees coming alive in the gentle wind. It carried with it distant shouts and laughter, and a playful piano echoing from a saloon on Main Street. After a few minutes of walking, he stopped and looked back. He could see the light in his window and the faint outline of his door. Within eyesight of his cabin, he would be able to watch this spot from his doorway for the next few days, to make sure it remained undisturbed. He scanned the street, and when he was confident he was alone, he readied his shovel and began to dig. They say that some distance south of his cabin, within view of the door, the Swede buried his curious cash. He confided in a few of his friends, but never revealed the exact location. A few days later, he was gone, and like many of the countless souls who ebbed and flowed through Granite Creek, the old Swede was quickly forgotten. Until one summer's day. That was the day when a certain word was on the lips of every prospector in the valley. Platinum. It turns out that is the real name of the white mineral all those miners were pulling from the creek and either throwing away or giving to Johansson. Now, it wasn't that platinum was a recent discovery. It had been known for over a century. It was because the price of platinum had gone up, significantly, from a number too low to notice to a value even higher than gold. It seemed that the name white gold was now much more fitting. By then, the creeks were nearly exhausted and most of the population had drifted away. But some of the longtime residents, their memories stoked by the fires of a surging market price, remembered the funny old man and his bucket of white metal that was now worth a small fortune. There was just one problem. Word spread that the Swede had buried his platinum cash somewhere within sight of his door. But a fire had devastated the town, and the Swede's old cabin, the only clue to the treasure's location, was one of the first to go, and no one in town seemed to remember exactly where it was. The Swede never returned to claim his platinum, 
even as prices soared over $100 an ounce. Locals dug through the ash of the former camp, but never found a trace of the treasure. It's now been over a century since Johansen is said to have buried his legendary cash. A cash that, depending on the amount of platinum inside, is estimated to be worth anywhere from $300,000 to $65 million, if the stories are true. Today, Granite Creek is little more than an overgrown field, yet prospectors still work their claims nearby and people still come to the ghost town in much the same spirit as they did all those years ago. They walk the ruined foundations, poke through the dirt, and search across the pockmarked landscape in the hope that they'll be next to strike it rich, to stumble upon a lost treasure and succeed in finding their fortune. Part 5. Treasure Hunt I said earlier that the region has always been home to one treasure or another, and that's true for both natural treasures like gold and platinum and human-made treasures. A bucket full of platinum has never been found, at least as far as we know. But more modest treasures have been discovered in Granite Creek and the surrounding area on a few occasions. In 1964, a man named Don Coombs was down on his luck and came to Granite Creek to live in one of the empty cabins and pan for gold. While fixing up his cabin of choice, Don stumbled upon several Prince Albert tobacco tins filled with money. Like Johnny Chance and the legendary Englishman who spent his last dollar on a claim, Don had come to Granite Creek with empty pockets and left with a sizable return, a stack of money totaling $1,198. That's the equivalent of about $10,300 today. Not bad for three hours' work. A few days later, Don went to the bank to cash in his findings, and the confused bank manager was forced to page through several beaten-up reference books to validate the currency, some of which dated from 1898. Now, a few of you might have just gasped in horror, because you know that if you take any kind of currency to a bank, you're only going to get the face value for your effort. And that's what Don did. He walked out of that bank with nearly $1,200 in fresh, clean bills, not realizing that his find would have fetched, according to Bill Barley, 10 times that amount, over $12,000 on the collector's market. That's equal to $103,000 today. Ouch. The treasure finding continued. In 1972, over 600 Chinese coins were found near the ruins of an old cabin. The year after that, another tobacco tin was found in the ruins of a log cabin on nearby Newton Creek. This one was nearly full of Canadian and American silver and copper coins. All of these are fantastic and exciting discoveries, but they are, admittedly, just a drop in the proverbial platinum bucket, both in terms of value and in the sheer excitement the discovery would bring. The legend of Johansson's platinum cache has been part of BC lore for over a century. Today, the story is somewhat obscure, but it enjoyed a brief period of increased popularity in the 1960s and 70s, when authors like Bill Barley, Garnet Basque, and T.W. Patterson began chronicling the stories of the mines, trails, and ghost towns of Western Canada. Now, I was born and raised in Greater Vancouver, and as an adult, I have visited Granite Creek multiple times. The opening to this episode is informed by my personal experience of the place. There are potholes everywhere. 
No doubt most of them are from a rush of bottle diggers, metal detectors, and scavengers that swarmed Canada's historic sites in the 1960s and 70s. But undoubtedly, some were dug by hopeful treasure hunters seeking the Swedes' long-lost cash. And I'll admit, though my visits to Granite Creek never included any digging in the town, out of respect for the historic site and the laws that protect it, I couldn't help but wonder if a legendary treasure was lying somewhere just below my feet. And that leads us to the potentially $65 million question. Is there any truth to the legend? Let's start with the idea of a platinum cache. The rare and precious element is found in placer deposits in only a few places throughout the world. Perhaps the most notable are the Amur River in eastern Russia and the Tulamine-Similkamine River in British Columbia, Canada. In fact, you can pan that river today and still find trace amounts of platinum, along with bits of gold dust and the occasional nearly microscopic garnet. So the treasure in the legend does indeed fit the history and the natural landscape. There's also evidence that some in Granite Creek hoarded and buried their platinum in much the same way Johansson did in the legend. There are a number of historical accounts of early Chinese prospectors collecting their platinum in empty tins. There was a time when the substance was only selling for 25 to 50 cents an ounce. The camp dealers wouldn't even touch it. When a miner brought in his poke, the dealer would empty it out onto the counter and brush anything that wasn't gold onto the floor. And it wasn't worth it to travel all the way to New Westminster to sell a bucket of rocks for a paltry amount, so many chose to hold on to their findings and bury their cans by their cabins, then simply wait for the price to go up. There are stories of old Chinese miners and their families returning to Granite Creek half a century later to exhume their buried platinum and finally cash it in. The stories tell us that only a few were successful. Many others became lost and confused by the transformed and unfamiliar landscape and eventually left empty-handed. One story from the Great Depression tells of a man who came to Granite Creek and made good money washing gold that is, treating gravel, soil, and clay with water to release the small bits of gold that might be hiding inside. The locals noticed that he often worked near the crumbling remains of the Chinese quarter and suspected that he was actually searching for, and likely found, several of these fabled platinum tins that the miners had left behind. So far, the legend seems plausible. There was a significant amount of platinum at Granite Creek, and it wasn't unheard of for miners to bury small tins of the stuff for safekeeping. So, is it possible that a 20-gallon bucket of platinum could still be hidden underground, waiting to be discovered? Well, people like local historian Diane Stern aren't convinced. The legend tells us that Johansson had been working a claim on Granite Creek for only two or three years before he buried his bucket of white gold and left for the Kootenays. Depending on who you ask, Johansson left town around 1889, 1895, or 1907. But Stern points out that the Geological Survey of Canada had officially identified the white gold as platinum in 1886. The following year, in 1887, the newspaper known as the Victoria Daily Colonist noted how the rare white metal found in abundance in Granite Creek, quote, used to be thrown away, but it will not be thrown away anymore, for it is worth about as much as gold, perhaps more, end quote. This means that by 1889, the earliest year Johansson was said to have left town, the price of platinum already rivaled the price of gold. And that fact would have been common knowledge for every man spending his days on the creek. 
So it's hard to believe that any prospector after 1887 would simply toss their platinum into Johansson's bucket, or that Johansson would bury and abandon that bucket when it was literally worth its weight in gold. Now, it could be that the stories are wrong, and that Johansson collected and buried his platinum much earlier in the gold rush, between 1885 and 1887. But if that's the case, it means that, after the price of platinum skyrocketed, he, and everyone else in Granite Creek, had a full 20 years to seek out and retrieve the valuable cash before the town was destroyed by fire in 1907. That's a long time, and if there was a legendary buried cash, it probably would have been recovered and sold long ago. Part 6. Ghost Town On April 4, 1907, a faulty stovepipe sparked a fire that destroyed most of Granite Creek. When the smoke finally cleared, all but a handful of cabins were nothing but blackened rubble. A letter to the Similkamine Star newspaper, signed anonymously as Old Timer, but likely penned by Judge Murphy, had this to say about the camp that many loved so dear. With the passing of Granite Creek, the last monument of the golden age of placer mining in the Similkamine has passed away. And the miner of the future will not be able to see even a remnant of what was once a town sporting 17 saloons, a government office, a temple of justice, and a large number of miners' cabins, with the latch string hanging on the outside to notify the traveler that high-souled hospitality awaited him on the inside. Those are touching words, and they're even more meaningful when you're standing in that dry field, looking over the last physical remnants of a once-beloved community. In his letter, the old-timer is hopeful that the camp will rise like a phoenix out of the ashes, but a century later, we know that never happened. The truth is, Granite Creek was dying long before flames consumed what was left. In November 1886, just 16 months after Johnny Chance's fateful discovery, the stampede was over. Most of the creek had been thoroughly worked and only the benches remained. Though the gold was plentiful, the quantity and ease of the work had been severely overstated. Some say mostly by railroad workers turned prospectors who got a little too excited when they found a flash in their pan. One newspaper reported that of the 3,000 who flocked to the creek and riverbanks that previous spring, only 250 remained. Houses, once valued at over $1,500, were selling for just $15, not as homes, but as firewood. In one case, a hand-built cabin was exchanged for two glasses of whiskey. The more determined, more experienced miners persevered and made steady, honest wages for a time, but by 1896, Granite Creek was barely a shadow of its former self. Some residents chose to rebuild after the fire, including Fox Crowell Percival Cook, the man whose stovepipe allegedly caused fire, and who, in my opinion, has one of the greatest names of all time. He finally closed up shop in 1912. The post office followed in 1918. After the prospectors abandoned the creek, the corporations moved in, washing away hillsides and riverbanks, dredging and even altering the course of the creek. In the late 1960s, a Vancouver smelting firm destroyed five foundations because they wanted to dig a pit. That desolation was followed by over-eager treasure hunters who set fire to most of the remaining cabins and sifted through the ashes in a desperate attempt to find any treasures that may have been secreted away. 
Even as late as 2017, disrespectful treasure seekers and grave robbers were digging holes in the Chinese section of the Granite Creek Cemetery, hoping to scavenge what they could from the dead. The remains of this little ghost town have been abused, vandalized, and ignored for decades. But recently, it has gotten a little more respect. The Granite Creek Preservation Society, chaired in part by author and historian Diane Stern and her husband Bob, have done much to keep the history alive. In 2018, thanks in part to a government grant, they installed a multi-signed, self-guided walking tour and continue to collect all of the history and photographs they can. You can learn more and donate to the society at granitecreekbc.ca. If you're ever passing through the Sinulkameen Valley, heading east or west along the Crow's Nest Highway, consider taking a moment to visit Princeton, Colmont, and Granite Creek. But please, respect the nearby communities and the law. Avoid adding to the destruction of the historic town site, and make sure you get permission before you try panning the creek or river. Much of the claims are still owned and worked to this day. Avoid claim jumping entirely and take a walk instead. Listen to the rush of the water and the wind in the trees, and consider the words of Bill Barley. If you listen carefully, you can almost hear the sound of the sluice boxes running and the packers shouting as their pack trains swing onto Government Street and head for the Caribou House. It's a humbling experience to stroll that desolate and sun-swept bench and think of the thousands of people who once crowded its streets just to get a shot at a better life. And admittedly, it's exciting to imagine that maybe somewhere, perhaps right below your feet, lies a lost and legendary treasure. The Swedes Lost Platinum Cache of Granite Creek That's it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening, and for joining me in becoming part of a Canadian folk tradition. Now that you know the story, share it. And remember, sometimes one man's trash can literally be another man's treasure, as long as you know where to dig. Fireside Canada is written and recorded by me, David Williams. Sound design and mixing is by Braden Alexander. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider giving this podcast a positive review. If you want to help even further, you can provide story ideas and more through my website. Every little bit helps to keep the fire burning and the library of legends growing. Learn more at firesidecanada.ca.